Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this latest episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me here, excited to kick off our fourth annual Director Month, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Konnichiwa! Oh, I love it. I love yeah. it. Keeping it thematic. Yeah, I try to. I try to keep it keep it going. So listeners, you need to come back for the next three main episodes and find out what other phrases Patrick decides to well, use. <laughs> now the pressure's on, right? <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Well, this is something we started back in January 2017, my friend, and we did that as a way to go through most of Christopher Nolan's filmography in order. So it was really self-serving <laughs> and had nothing to do with listeners at that point. I don't know how many listeners we even had. We were just like, man, we want to talk about Christopher Nolan because he's our favorite. How are we going to do this? Oh, we'll just make up this thing called Director Month and do it that way. And it just kind of became something that we really enjoyed a lot and yeah. wanted to continue. So, you know, each January, we have picked a director and highlighted four or five of their films. We've done Nolan, Kubrick, James Cameron, and then this year we are covering the films of one of our favorite animation directors, Makoto Shinkai. One quick note before we get going here, coming up very soon in our Facebook group will be the nomination process for the 2020 Feelers Choice Awards. This is where you, our listeners, and our community get a chance to participate fully in an award process, just like film critics do in their film critic societies or Oscar voters do with the Academy. There will be polls for each award, and the top five vote getters will become the nominees. So you have the power. A couple of weeks later, we will share the final ballot in the Facebook group and have you all pick your winners. The key here is that in order to make sure that not just anyone is putting in their two cents, we want it to be feeling film listeners only. We have to keep this process locked down to our awesome discussion group. You hear us plug it all the time. We do so for a reason. So if you're not part of it already, please consider joining. Help us out. Be a part of the 2020 Feelers Choice Awards. You can get there at facebook.com slash groups slash film. We would definitely love to have you. All righty. Well, with that out of the way, it is time to get started. Here is your spoiler warning. And I guess even before your spoiler warning, I should say, if you haven't seen this film, if you haven't even heard of this film, I'm surprised you're turning on this episode if you know what our show is. But the thing is, the place promised in our early days is Makoto Shinkai's very first feature-length animation film. It is not famous by any stretch of the imagination. It is, in my opinion, sort of underrated. Um, it's not necessarily thought of highly by most people who've only watched it once. We'll get into that as well. And you can currently see it only a couple of ways that I know of. Uh, the main one is through Crunchyroll. So if you have Crunchyroll access, uh, if you are a subscriber to that, you can obviously watch it. Um, I also believe that it is there and you can do a free trial on Crunchyroll uh, and be able to watch the film that way. I'm not sure about watching it on Crunchyroll with ads. I've been told that that's a thing. I'm not 100% sure, um, but there's just not a lot of places out there, unfortunately, to get this one. And that is the main one 
that I know of. Patrick, do you know of anywhere else? I don't okay. at the time, though. Okay, so Crunchyroll is your spot if you would like to check this out. It's not a super long film. It's the equivalent of about, what, 90 minutes, maybe an hour, actually? Right, right, at, it, right at an hour and a half. Right at an hour and a half. Okay, so 90 minutes. And then, uh, yeah, check it out, though, because we are going to spoil it. And if you haven't seen it, it's a, Makoto, blah, 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 it's a Makoto Shinkai film, which means there's lots of little twists and turns and fun stuff to be revealed, and you don't want us to ruin that for you. And desktop wallpaper galore. Every single shot. Pause yep. it, screenshot, and just ugh, take in the beauty. <laughs> All right, man. Well, with that out of the way, what is your one-word takeaway? I walked away from this one with the word ambiguous. And um, this was one of the movies that I covered a couple of summers ago in my summer of anime, where I went through uh, about eight or nine movies from three or four different directors to kind of give myself the ability to sample a breadth of of anime from years ago. I think the earliest one was maybe 1987, maybe 1990, all the way up to, I believe, 2015. And when I came across this one, I remember thinking, you can read this on the website, that I think the the one word takeaway that I picked at that time was again, and that I needed to watch it again, because there's a lot happening in this 90 minutes that Shinkai doesn't necessarily give you a lot of uh, help with. He'll give you clues. He'll frame things visually and narratively in a way that kind of gives you a hint of what's going on. It's not necessarily getting into Christopher Nolan territory in terms of the way in which the the story goes, but the structure of it is one of those that I think reminds us of Your Name and other Shinkai films that he plays with time, he plays with different elements. That's probably what I like about him the most is that he's very ambitious. That was actually my second one-word takeaway in line after this one, very ambitious, because I think that this is a movie that does that it does feel a little bit ambitious especially for his first feature length film uh, i also know that he wrote i believe it was a manga based off of uh that this was based off of so a lot of what you see in this i'd be interested to read the manga to figure out kind of what he left and what he didn't but as i walked away from the movie i really couldn't help but think man i don't know if i got everything i mean i think i got the plot points and i think that I understand the gist of what he was trying to say, but I needed some help from the internet. I needed some help from my second viewing. Uh, but overall, I really enjoyed it. Well, ambitious is a very, very, very good one word takeaway, um, but ambiguous works as well. For sure. I know exactly what you're talking about. This was my second viewing and it definitely elevated for me. And we'll talk about why here just after this, but uh, my one more takeaway was template and it's for some of the reasons that you just mentioned so as i said this is shinkai's first feature length film and he has shown flashes already of this sci-fi historical or alternate history romantic blend of storytelling uh, particularly in his excellent short film voices of, of a distant star but here I just feel that it really started to synthesize in a long-form storytelling method in a way that allowed him to develop his characters further, which 
for me, resulted in a much deeper emotional connection to them. And this is what we start to see from him now for the rest of his career. Now, there are exceptions, the Garden of Words being the main one that we're going to talk about during our month. It's not sci-fi. It's it's so much more grounded than anything else he's really done. But everything else has elements of this weird stuff going on in the world, and it all revolves around certain romantic threads, and there are always incredible, incredible visuals. His style is so unique and so freaking gorgeous. We're just going to gush over it for the next four episodes constantly, so get used to it. Um, I even had Patrick, by the way, make me a wallpaper for this month, listeners, each of Shinkai's movies at one point or another seems to have two main romantic characters in a pair. And so they're like framed with the beautiful backgrounds behind them. So Patrick took those and made me a wallpaper featuring like all five of them. It's all, oh, it's fantastic. I love looking at it and it's just enhancing this whole month of talking about his films even more. But like I said, thematically, all of the things start to find their way in the rest of his films, the visuals, the musical cues, trains 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 <laughs> and rain so many trains and rain trains and rain the movie makoto that is going to be his documentary or biography name makoto shinkai <laughs> trains and rain and, and you know it's it's understandable because that's japan right like that's where he's pulling from um, but my goodness does he use them frequently uh, and then again those romantic pairings i mentioned somehow that are always separated by distance or space or time or multiple of those three so this is the template for many of the themes and the styles that he is going to bring to the rest of his filmography and i love it all right well this movie is also unique amongst his filmography patrick and pretty much all animation i haven't really seen many other films that do this in the way that it uses a four-part structure and yes, I know for those of you who are also Shinkai fans that five centimeters per second has three episodes, but three is not four, so I am not technically wrong. Basically, he gives us four short films, uh, varying lengths, that are set at different periods and actually work linearly, as you almost wouldn't expect them to, but they do, to progress the story. My first question is, how you felt about that, because I think that, especially on that first viewing, this is the thing that can really, one of two things, that can really make it complicated, make it somewhat ambiguous, the cuts in the four episodes. Are they clean? Do they work? Do we, do they work? Does it feel like you're watching a Netflix series and you're like ready to get to that next episode? And Frankly, did this add anything to your experience, Patrick, or did it take away anything from your experience? How did that work for you? Well, when I watched it the first time a couple of summers ago, it was one of the frustrating points because it wasn't expected. And I didn't have an expectation going into it. And so when you add a little bit of a different kind of narrative in general on top of a genre that I'm not quite used to, it really made it troublesome because I didn't know what was going on. There were times when, uh, much like Little Women, we got visual cues based on the length of hair or the color palette that was being used to help differentiate time periods. Here, all we got was a black screen that said, 
later that summer or four years earlier or three months later, you know, those kinds of things. And it was almost too quick. Like I didn't really pick when I watched the movie, I said, whoa, whoa, what, what did that say? And at first it didn't work for me, to be honest. I think that if you look at it that way as four specific episodes or four parts to a story, it definitely helps. And this time around, knowing that going into it, it helped me a lot. I was able to focus on the fact that I know where the story's going so I can kind of be prepared for it. It was a lot like when we covered Much Ado About Nothing. Because there's such a disparity in the language that we're used to, our modern language and the Elizabethan language, it was important for me to read the story ahead of time so that I could focus on the elements of the language and the, the rhythms of the, of that story and really have that entertain me. Knowing the story ahead of time this time and having a little help from Wikipedia because it'd been a couple of years since I'd watched it, I was able to follow it a lot better. Now there were still parts within those four kind of episodes or four stories that felt a little underexplained or overexplained. But for the most part, my ability to follow it was really influenced by those external forces, by the previous viewing and then a little bit of help from the Internet. So I have to completely agree with you. And one of our listeners, one of our patrons who is a feeling film anime like expert, Philip Hurd, he loves his film. And on Letterboxd, he has a couple of brief reviews of it. And they're at five stars. And he talks about this. He talks about how. He felt the same way, and he actually feels the same way with a lot of Makoto Shinkai films, that it often takes him multiple viewings to appreciate them, and that he's come to find that with every single future viewing, he gets more and more and more out of them, which is not unlike how we respond to Christopher Nolan films. I think they're a little easier to grasp on the first viewing, um, Nolan is, and part of that is probably a cultural shift. We're not watching them with subtitles, and we're not trying to adapt to a different world. But they kind of follow that path. For me, every time I watch a Nolan movie, it gets better. And every time I watch a Shinkai movie, it gets better. And this was no different, Patrick. Um, I liked it a lot more than I liked it the first time. And the first time, I was a little off-put because I was like, okay, what's going on here? Because of the way that my last few days have gone... And they've just, it's, it's complete luck or whatever the word you want to use is fate. Cause we're talking about Shinkai. We might as well talk fate, but like, I didn't watch this all in one sitting, which is different from the first time I watched it. So I actually watched it somewhat episodically. Like I watched the first part and I like took a break and I went and got some food <laughs> and then I came back and I watched the second part. And then I watched the third part, like seven, eight hours later. And then I watched the fourth part a day later. And each section felt like an episode. That's why I brought that up. At the end of the first, you know, we have characters meeting each other. We're introduced to them. And it ends with, like, the group promise to go visit the tower together, right? Which is the title, the, the promise that we're referring to. The second episode introduces us to the fact that there's this conflict going on kind of in this alternate history. And we learn about the tower and a little more of the backstory of the world, we start to make the plane, right? And we realize, okay, so this is how we're going to get there. The third is where 
it starts to really drop in the wackiness in a way where we get complicated ambiguity is what I would use is your word where they're trying to give us more information about the conflict and the different factions and what's happening and what, you know, what's going on with this parallel world that Sayuri is stuck in and then how the tower is bringing a new reality on top of ours and devouring our world and, and all the crazy stuff is getting kind of explained. And it's escalating the conflict between Hiroki and Takia about what they're going to do. And we have terrorists and a lot gets involved in this third episode. And then the fourth pretty quickly just goes on a nice little path and brings everybody back together, wraps things up and hits it home. And it felt like a series to me. It felt like a series and it worked really well in that capacity. Now, I think that if you put these all four together and watch them with some sort of transition scenes in between them, it would probably work just fine, but it felt almost better to me to watch it this way, Patrick. And I wonder if others might enjoy it more that way. Well, I think, I think there's something to be said because as you finish one taking a break, you have a chance to let your brain and your heart absorb everything that you've seen. You have it. Whereas if you watch it straight through, which is intended but maybe not this is the, this is what's fun about having a digital version or having the ability to pause or move forward or move backwards you have the ability to digest at your own pace and you don't have that chance when you're watching it straight through and i think that's the art of shinkai in this one is that he perhaps he's understanding that this will be consumed in a theater and it will be consumed on a DVD or a Blu-ray or a 4K or 8K or whatever K we're dealing with it in the next several years. And maybe that's what he's getting at is that this can work both ways. I think that having not gone through it episodically or taken breaks, I think the third part is probably the most troublesome because he crams so much and so much complexity into that information in this part. So it's one thing to have a lot of information. It's another thing to have that information be kind of very heady. When you start getting into talking about parallel universes and how this thing, it only goes like two meters and it replaces one dimension with another. I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, we were just talking about these kids and a coming of age story about how they want to go to the tower. And now you've kind of come off the wagon or you've, you've pulled the the wheels off the wagon or whatever the expression is and and that's kind of what troubled me the first time more so the second time not as much because i knew it was coming but i really paid close attention to what was going on in that third part because i knew that's where all the information was that we got what's interesting is that that fourth part felt a little bit more like a softball where it was very straightforward it was actually less complex than parts one and two and way more com or way less complex than part three so it felt a little uneven and i wonder that if i went back and watched it and gave myself some time between if i'd feel differently exactly and and i did and i think that that's what like i said i had like 24 hours between three and four and it felt to me so much better than it did trying to make that jump because you're right if you watch them back to back it's going to be jarring it's going to feel uneven you use the perfect word and i wonder 
why else he put this into four parts? Like, why didn't he just make it a movie? Is it because he'd only done short films up to this point and he was like, well, I'll just make a whole bunch of short films and put them together? Or was he being intentional? I, I need to go research it because I don't know. Maybe this is part of why. Maybe he wanted it to be consumed in patches. <laughs> hey, pun for your name. Uh, sorry. But like with like breaks in between for that very reason, you know, he's he's a pretty smart guy. So I'll have to look that up afterwards. Or listeners, if you actually know the answer to this, if anybody out there is a major Shinkai fan, please hit me up on social media and let us know. We would love to find out. But for me, overall, I find the way that he does his films in this with this complexity, I find it welcome more than I find it a flaw. I don't mind having to watch it more than once to grasp it because I find these are the films that I want to go revisit over and over and over and over because I like picking up more information. And it's kind of like how some people probably feel about Marvel. Not so much me, but when they are able to rewatch a Marvel movie and get a little new bit of fan service that they didn't have before. That's what it's like for me when I'm picking up a new detail in a Shinkai film or finding a connection and a link between his un his universe of characters that are not really in the same universe, but maybe get nodded to as we'll talk about as we go through. So I, I love it. So we talked about, he manages to mix this coming of age story and pretty much all of his films are like that. Another reason you and I love him so much. With sci-fi, and in this one, it's an alternate history. And it, it's just a unique movie experience, unlike anything we really get in live action. The story is this. Let me recap it for those who haven't watched this anytime recently. Just really briefly, the history is that the, the film takes place in an alternate history where Japan has been divided along Cold War lines with one area... Hokkaido, having been renamed as Izo, and that went to the Soviets, and then the rest of Japan has fallen under American influence. And it's really weird at first, because that third part especially, you've got different people in different languages, and all of a sudden the Americans show up, and there's no subtitles, and they're actually speaking English, and it's really weird, and you're like, what is happening right now? Because the whole film has been in subtitles in Jap Japanese up until that point. And I was like, why aren't the Americans just speaking? In, you know what I mean? Like, it was weird for me. But there's... So, for American viewers who are not familiar with Japanese culture or Japanese history in and of itself, in order to... You're already trying to get accustomed to watching a film that has a different culture and, and feel to it. And then you have to get used to an alternate version of that that's that complexity you're talking about. When you cram all that in and on top of that, throw in your parallel universes, it's a crazy experience. It really is. But we obviously like it overall and we're able to get past that. So what stood out to you about how he blends these things together that was the most enjoyable? I think more than anything, it felt like a history lesson. Um, the first time I watched it uh, and something I remember this time was understanding the education system of these students. They talk about having club um, and going on break. And again, and I'm trying to relate this to being in junior high and high school. It's not necessarily an important fact, but they talk about going to work over the break. And I'm thinking, how, how long is the break that you're going to get all this stuff done in a week? It sounds like spring break. Coming to find out that in that culture, there are longer breaks in between these trimesters or semesters. I still don't know much about it, but Shinkai manages to capture the culture of that world that he knows so well 
And he also, I think I also dig those alternate timelines, the, the alternate histories where we have this, what would happen if, um, Apple TV has one of these right now. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet, but it was, it's a series that centers around the idea of what if the Soviets actually beat us to the moon? What would the world look like in, uh, a world where the Soviets actually ruled the space, space age? Those kinds of questions, I think, allow Shinkai to play in the sandbox of both a little bit of familiarity and a little bit of difference. And I think that extends to the sci-fi element where I don't know much about Japanese history or Japanese interests, but obviously Shinkai loves science. He loves understanding the why does this happen or asking those questions. And so when you get to those moments in the movie where he just assumes that we understand what's happening here, which I think maybe it's, and that's subjectivity right there. Uh, maybe I didn't quite get it. Maybe you got it more than I did. I think that's where for me, he falters just a little bit, but I think it's the love that he puts into being able to show us like, here's what I love. Here's what I, here are the stories that I love telling. And I, I think that for me, the best parts are when I was learning something new, specifically about something that was real, maybe not parallel universes, maybe they're real, maybe they're not, but really more so about the Japanese culture and really about these friendships and the the ability that these students have to be able to build this plane. I don't think he's making that up. I think that there are incredible students over on the eastern part of the world that would have this ability to be that innovative. And so I, I love that he's actually, I guess, paying some celebration to that culture, to its innovation, to its ability to try and learn and discover, because that's what this movie is. It's really not main theme, but one of the big themes is the themes of discovery, you know, discovering what's the point of the tower, what's happening over there, what, what, what's happening on that island, what's going on with, uh, with these three and, and with her and why she's dreaming. It's all these like, we don't know what's going on. Now, to a point, you kind of start asking more questions than you answer, and that can bother me because that happens with some of J.J. Abrams' projects where he'll introduce about 15 questions that give you a great mystery, and he'll only answer three, and he'll say, see you later. Um, I don't think Shinkai does this as much. There are a couple of things, but it wasn't enough to distract me from my enjoyment of the movie overall. Well, I like all of that stuff as well. I'm with you there, and you know, for me, the thing that holds me back from putting this higher in a favorites type of list is that that third part is still complicated and I understand it much better watching it multiple times. But even so you mentioned going online, I went online, no shame. And we're going to put that out there. Listeners, if you're listening and you watch this movie and you find yourself confused, go online, read through with a Wikipedia page. The plot is perfectly expressed there and it will help you out as you're going through this film to understand it better. And you can grasp it and then once you kind of know who the players are the liberation front and the different sides of the war and why they're doing what they're doing you can enjoy it more because you're not 
trying to figure it out as it goes. And when it's moving, I mentioned this before, it's another culture and it's subtitles, so you're reading. And so you have to process all of that while trying to figure things out. And it can be frustrating. Um, but once I got it, Patrick, I really like this idea that you have this, I don't know how you pronounce it, this Yulta liberation front that is ultimately wanting reunification of Japan, which makes sense. And so what they want to do is they want to bomb this tower to incite a war that will eventually like have, you know, them push Russia out and, and bring it back together. It's, it's a, it's, it makes sense. Okay. So it's like a terrorist group, right? essentially. And so that makes perfect sense. It really does. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I like the idea of this tower in general is fascinating to me. Shinkai has this in almost all of his movies, man. And I think it's voices of a distant star where they're essentially text messaging each other across space time. And it's, it's phenomenal. It's, like, it's a weird conceit, right? Like you have these two lovers, these two characters and time has gone by and this person is in space, which of course, as we know from interstellar is altering how fast each other ages. But yet, this person is sending a text message. And so it takes years to get there. And then they're sending messages back. And it's it's fascinating. And it's just a super interesting way to not think about science, but think about romance and how it affects human emotion and human relationships. And so we get to see that here. It's not just about this cool tower that is mysterious out in the fields, which is neat, Right. That reminds me of so many other movies like the obelisk. Like, what is that thing out there and what is it doing? It's just interesting and mysterious and you want to go check it out. But that is used as a thing that brings people together. They make the promise. We're going to go there together. It's not about just figuring out what the tower is. It's about going there together. The three of them. It's about the promise. Right. And and also the promise that Sayuri makes at one point to go. And so I really, really like that. I love the plane design of it's a drone, I believe of some kind that gets crashed that they are like reworking and recreating. It's absolutely sick. <laughs> I mean, it is so freaking awesome. The way that like, especially in the end of the movie, when you see it, like it looks cool, like on the ground. Cause it's got like a little circle part to it. But then when it opens up its propeller and starts spinning and it's just, I don't know. It's just, freaking cool that's all i can say <laughs> it's it's really delicate and that's the that's the interesting thing about what shinkai does visually among his stunning animation like the color palette is at the end of the movie what you see is like the as the as the plane is taking off there's all this power behind it there's all this like technology and it's driven by machine and just metal and harsh kind of just metal and electricity. But then when it gets to the tower and it goes to what I call prop mode, it's almost as if it's gliding and it's just like a bird. And I really think that's by design. There's no, there's no steam trail or whatever that's called behind it. It is simply just floating. And those propellers are just slowly, delicately moving in opposite directions. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to watch. It's, it's something that I would love to see in real life to look up at the sky and see this thing floating. There are some fantastic shots of it going over the tower in that calm, 
I think it was an alternate universe when they got to the tower, uh, but I'm not sure. I mean, we'll, we'll go ahead and call it that. But it goes from chaos and industry and machine to calm and beautiful and glide. And I really think that's by design because it's almost like you're in the eye of a storm, in the eye of a hurricane where everything is just still. And to have a, a machine like that that starts out in cold metal turn into something that is almost like a bird is pretty fabulous. Yeah, it really is. And and so I think that these elements work really well together. And I, and it's part of why we are such big fans of his work in general. And the we just think he's fantastic is because he has this ability to blend this sci-fi world with a historical concept and also a coming of age story between these characters and it works and it's unlike anything you get to see. And so I think that they work really, really well together other than what we've already stated, which is the little bit of probably over heavy use of explanation uh, for what's going on with the heavier side of the plot in episode three there, maybe spread that out, but mostly they work really well together. Something else that stands out, of course, unable to miss is that his vibrant colored canvases and you know this movie in particular patrick um i don't know i've always liked his hyper realistic style okay so your name um and probably five centimeters per second would fall into this even actually most of his films garden of words falls kind of in that category and they're always very crisp and very striking with their use of color. What shocked me, and I guess I'd forgotten, was how much of a watercolor-like palette there is in this film in particular. So much of this movie looks more like a Studio Ghibli film in some ways than it does a Makoto Shinkai film. Yet the color and the way the color pops within that is still Shinkai, very clearly. It's unique, it's eye-catching, and it is recognizable. And I think that that is something that defines a very special artist in any way, whether it's a painting type of artist or a director's specific style. When you can point out, like, oh, that is that person. Like, I know a David Fincher film, crime film. Like, I don't need to know the plot, but when I'm watching it, I know it's David Fincher because of the way in which that film is happening. That's the same thing it is with his visuals here. And it's like he's mixing this roughness with a smoothness. And it's just so it's almost like a like a sketch, Patrick, like someone was literally out in a field painting some of this movie. And then there's like brief moments of like, bam, his typical high, high the hyper realistic uh, CGI looking bright, shining animation and it's it's a really unique mix that I found to be incredibly, incredibly awesome to look at. And I, I like you said earlier, screenshots, you know, this is not just in every movie, but like specifically in this one, I just wanted to pause. I, I would find my honestly, I would find myself distracted at times, not thinking about reading the stinking subtitles because I was staring at the backgrounds. That's how much I love the visuals in this film. This is where the English dub really helps because you are not having to have that secondary 
attention. And again, I have to think about the primary audience for this. It's not U.S. people. I mean, obviously he knows this is going to be shipped overseas and we're going to get to see it and love it like we do all of his movies. But if I'm thinking like a native person, like a Japanese person in the theater, they're not distracted by that because they don't have to read anything. It's all in their language, which is fantastic. What I find interesting, Aaron, is I feel like as as an artist, I look at that and go, there has to be some purpose behind his style. Now, everybody has their style just innately. They develop a style. But there's usually a reason behind it. It's usually to make a, um, it's usually to make some kind of statement or some kind of stance of like, this is who I am. And for Shinkai, I think it's happened gradually. What I believe, and I could be wrong because I don't know the guy, at least not yet. I mean, we haven't hung out, but I think that when I watch his movies and I, and I see the themes play out and I see the, the characters interact, I feel like there's a sense of hope that exists in all of his movies. And that is emphasized by his use of light. He uses a lot of lens flares, a lot of reflections, a lot of natural light in his animation, sunlight, stars, um, different kinds of like rays, bright clouds. That color and the use of light, I really think is his way of showing that his movies even in their darkest points, literally and figuratively, will have a light at the end of it, that they will eventually lead to something that's hopeful. All four of his movies, without going into detail about spoilers, have a sense of hope attached to them. Whether that's intentional or not, that's what I'm picking up. I think that they're, they're more than just adventure stories. They're more than just sci-fi stories. They're stories about relationships and about what it means to hope in something or someone. In this case... The place promised in our early day. I mean, a promise. That's something to hope in, right? So watching this, it's obviously beautiful to look at. But I think he cares equally as much about the landscapes and the things going on around the characters as much as he does about the characters themselves. Case in point, at one point we see, I believe it's Sayuri and Hiroki on one of the many train sequences. They're in the corner, the left corner of the shot, of the frame, and we see reflections of the sun flipping through the top of the train. Is that by design? Absolutely. Because we hear the dialogue, whether you're reading the subtitles or not, but your eye is not focused on their conversation. And so just like the beginning of the movie, when um, when Hiroki says, I always... Uh, have a premonition that I'm losing something. That's what she told me. And that's in black. And then the next thing you see and hear are footsteps in a busy subway station. I think that's all by design, Aaron, because as much as he appreciates the dialogue, because I think he was the head writer on this, he also appreciates the scenery, the landscape, what you actually watch, what you actually see. And really, that's a fundamental truth about animation, is that animation is equally about the visual as it is about the oral. That's why we love Pixar so much. We love how hyper-realistic or photorealistic some of these things are. Like, I can't believe that that Woody looks like that. It's crazy. Because there's some value in it. And we want to look around at things. And I don't think that that's uh, a mistake. I think that's really him saying everything needs to be chewed up by your eye 
and then your ears take in everything else. I think it all works together. It, it is. It's part of his storytelling. It is part of his storytelling method. It is no different than a live action director like Bong Joon-ho using specific angles and framing the way that we see this incredible house in Parasite in order to further the way that the story is telling you about what is going on with class and where characters are in their lives, etc. That's the depth that Shinkai pours into his animation. It's not there just because he's a really good drawer and it's pretty. It has a purpose, like you said. And again, like catching things like you did in the reflections of, of scenes, those are amazing things to note on future viewings, you know, or like you said, when you finally get around to watching the dub because you're not having to read the whole time. I, I'm jealous. Did you watch the dub this last time? I didn't even know there was a dub. There is a dub available. I actually have a copy of it um, uh, available to me that oh. was very helpful. Wow. Well, that needs to be made available to me. So yes. I can watch it again. <laughs> I would like to watch it again. Uh, this, is a, this is a re- reoccurring thing with Shinkai where you know I like to watch his films originally in their native language first, and then I do like to check out the dubs. I actually have sort of done that with, I think, most of Miyazaki's movies. No, that's backwards, actually. Most of Miyazaki's movies, I've watched the dub first. And then I've never found myself wanting to go back because <laughs> I'm lazy. But Shinkai, I really do enjoy, especially getting the character reactions. There's something unique about how characters react. And I'll talk about this in a couple weeks when we cover Weathering with You because I watched it twice already, uh, subtitled, and now I'm going to go see the English version before our episode so that I can compare. But even just listening to the trailer, I know what these scenes are in their context. I know what these characters are saying. And to hear the English representation, it's different. It changes it. It changes the context some. And so I would love to get a copy of that and check it out both for that purpose, comparison, and then also just to kind of see how I enjoy it not having to read. I can pay attention to the beautiful pictures, Patrick. Well, another thing that he establishes, as we mentioned, is just these characters. And we have three main young kids in this one, two boys, and then Sayuri, who ultimately falls into this dream state. And then we have Mr. Okabe, is probably your fourth main character, who owns this warehouse and lets the boys use it in order to put this plane together. Ultimately, he's a member of the terrorist organization as well, and kind of pushes them forward into blowing up said tower. But with regards to relationships, it's always something that's there. It's not just coming of age. There's always something with romance. And they're always tied together, as I said, in some way across time, space, or parallel worlds. It's never just a, well, except in Garden of Words. It's never simplistic and straightforward, okay? And that one, it, it is pretty freaking straight. Literally walk into a garden, anyway. We'll get there. We're, we're covering it. I shouldn't go. <laughs> um, but the point is that most of the, you know, some of the, the, the snippets of like the budding of this romance here in this movie happen early on, but a large part of it happens when Sayuri is asleep and there's this connection between the two of them. 
Um, some of the scenes that I really like the most that didn't make my connecting point, I just want to point them out because they are like all related to this. One is also a cinematic shot that was really important to me. It's Takuri and Takuya and Sayuri when they first kind of meet. They're getting to know each other. They're flirting. They're on a train platform and they're having this cute little conversation. And she's like, "Do you like physics? My grandfather was a physicist." And it's like the perfect question. Like, what are you gonna ask a girl? You don't have anything to talk about, right? Do you like physics? <laughs> That's how I always lead my conversations at the bar, Patrick. I don't go to the bar actually, but anyway, you don't um, talk about physics. Either. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's more hours. likely that I'd go to the bar than I would talk about physics. <laughs> But they're they're talking, and there's an amazing shot with a train. The train comes in and parks, and we see, like, their legs, and they're obscured by this, like, A-frame beam, and you can't see all of them, but you can hear them talking. And this is the first time this promise comes up. Sayuri says, promise you won't laugh, and then we don't know what happens because the train comes. Um, it's a great start. The other moment, almost one of the ones that met, almost made my connecting point, is Hiroki who runs out to this platform. Sayuri is on the dock. She falls off. It's actually played pretty suspenseful. Like, you're almost thinking, like, something's going to happen to this girl. And we get the great moment of him rushing out. He catches her, and he says, we've done this before, which I love, because now we're talking about fate and intertwined universes, and it's like, hmm, we have a feeling that something... This is, this is a theme in Shinkai that is so resonant with me. There's a feeling here, a gut, that tells me... There's something between us that's happened or that is going to happen. I love these little moments. And then after that, the three of them are all in the water together and they're like splashing, splashing each other. And it's so realistic. It's like, stop splashing me. One of them gets ticked off, you know, like, stop it. That's me. And then the other ones are just, they're just trying to have fun. It's just a, it's a great bonding moment. And then the third big one for me is when she is asleep and Takuya is pining for her. And he's just kind of going through this morose period of his life, which I can resonate with. And he's unable to move on or show interest in any other relationships. He's tied to this person. There's something, there's a string, like in your name, the red string of fate that has connected them. And so I love it because that's like, it's like a precursor to that film and the way that they're connected over these parallel worlds. And when he does get to experience some time with her in this parallel world while she's asleep in this weird, wacky, don't ask me how it happens kind of thing, that's when we get the beautiful shot of the pair in this film. And, we, and, and that's, that scene, Patrick, that one way in which it's shot with them coming together, connecting somehow across these, these, this area of time, space, parallel worlds, that rep represents it, or replicates itself in multiple films throughout down the line whether it's your name five centimeters per second or even weathering with you and i love it and then he makes that promise i'm gonna fly you to the tower because we need to be together and then he realizes like this was in my dreams and it, there, those are this is the emotional moving stuff i love all the other stuff patrick i do and without it it wouldn't be shinkai and it wouldn't be as high but like this is the stuff that i am who boy 100% invested and in love with from this director. Absolutely. And when you look at what Shinkai does with the relationships, I want to emphasize the word relationship because this didn't have to be romantic. I think where Shinkai really hits his element is when he makes a connection. Yes, the natural tendency to go to um, romance is there, 
But I could have been completely happy if this relationship were platonic. If what he was emphasizing was the fact that their connection is what matters, a close friendship. And really that's emphasized by the fact that there's three of them. I mean, he's, well, it, by the end of the film, it pairs up where you have Hiroki and Sayuri. That makes sense. And it wasn't out of the ordinary, but what he sets up, I think is equally as valuable. And that's the relationship between Hiroki, Sayuri, and Takia. All three of them, the three of them make that promise together. And while Hiroki and Sayuri are the love interests, I don't know that it would necessarily be as effective without that third relationship because Takia's relationship with Hiroki is equally as valuable. There's that great scene where he holds him at gunpoint and he said it's either her or the fate of the world. And right. then the, and no then the stakes gunshot. or anything. <laughs> no st- yeah, exactly. And so watching that, it reminded me that Shinkai is not just concerned about romantic relationships. He's, he's concerned equally about connections across all the relationships that he develops, at least with his main characters. Yeah, it really is. And I'm so glad that you brought up the relationship between Takoya and um, Hiroki as well, because that's the thing. And that actually makes this film a little bit unique compared to some of the other movies. I mean, there are there are definitely side characters like in your name. There are friends in each of their friend groups, but it's about two central people and their romance. And here it's almost like a, a very realistic coming of age story where you have two friends who sort of kind of are a little bit pulled apart because of a girl at one point and they both have feelings for her but you know how is it going to play out there's some mystery to that that plays into this and you know ultimately it was this pulls us into the ending honestly because the movie wraps up you put it fairly swiftly is the way you worded it to me. And you're right. Like that fourth section flies by and it's over. You know, it starts off with them coming back together. And these were some of the, like I said, I I understand what you're saying. Like that would be very jolting to go from the crazy, just so much information packed into episode three to episode four. when we slow down and we're immediately like having Hiroki and Takuya come back together and work on the plane to finish it. And then we have a beautiful scene of him asking him to play his violin again. And they're just, they're having these moments before setting off to do the thing that they swore they were going to do. And, you know, Takuya saying, you know, Hiroki, you take her essentially, you know, you go do like having to make that decision. It's, it's a very tender, I would say fourth section for most of it and and you pointed it out even when they go in the air other than a brief incredibly animated section by the way when the planes take off and the resistance the war is starting to happen and there are missiles like that look like fireworks shooting through the sky ah, his animation is so freaking gorgeous man did you do you know what i'm talking about like that moment oh yeah oh, oh i yeah. was like whoa and they're flying i think right under it or right they over are it. Yeah. they're like and they're going through it you know and um they ultimately pops out on top of the clouds and that's when that calm happens and the kind of just floating towards the tower and even the bombing so like we get the moment of her waking up and then the bombing kind of happens the bomb falls and it boom and, and it's like over it's it's more of an emotional wrap-up than anything else but it worked for me and it worked for me 
on the level of the two boys finishing what they started and saying goodbye to each other, even though we don't necessarily expect it to be forever, but like one wishing the other good luck to go get this thing done. Um, and then also with the way that the romance winds up, I'll talk about that more in a minute, but, um, but it worked for me. I thought it was very satisfying and I liked that it was pretty quick and tidy personally. Did you feel that way at all? Uh, I'm still on the fence about it. I'm more on the side of, yes, I did like it. What threw me a little bit was I made more of the connection with that first line. I always have a dream that I'm I always have a premonition that I'm losing something. I made the connection this time around to her losing her memory and having to start over. I felt like I was supposed to be waiting for end credits when the music started and that we were supposed to kind of make our draw our own conclusion. So it still felt weird. It did feel like it wrapped up, but not as nicely as I would have liked. When you have that kind of emphasis on three main characters and you kind of jolt it down to two and you say, in scene, uh, it can be a little bit frustrating. Didn't take away my enjoyment by any means, but I think they could, that he could have stuck the landing a little bit better. That's fair and a nice pun use for sticking the landing because the plane ever actually doesn't land to my knowledge. I'm pretty sure that they just spin around in the air in fantasy world or whatever. Right, 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 right. <laughs> that's very anime though. You know, I know you don't watch like anime series very much, but that's a typical kind of way in which series episodes end and then burst into song towards the end credits and then kind of roll them their way out into the next episode. So it feels natural to me, having watched plenty of anime, but it's not a very Americanized structure <laughs> of an ending, that's for sure. Well, did you have anything else before we move on to the old connecting points? Nope, I did not. All right. Well, I'm going to go first, because mine ties in exactly with what we were just talking about, and I don't know what yours is, so that's going to have to do. Okay. Uh, mine is part of the ending. It's Sayuri's realization and waking up. Like you said... You know, ultimately, she has to deal with the understanding that that statement, the beginning line of the movie, is about this. I always have this feeling, the feeling that I'm losing something. The world is really beautiful, but it feels like it's just me who's drifting away from it, is what she says. And when she finally awakens while that plane is circling the tower... And the tower activates, and it immediately begins to transform the surrounding area in some way. I still don't understand what the heck it's doing. It The area under that transformation is growing to encompass much of the area that they're in. And in those last few minutes of her coma, she realizes that when she wakes up, she's going to lose the memories, right? And what memories is she worried about losing? She's worried about losing all of these dreams that she's had with Hiroki for the last three years. And she weeps and it's very sad. <laughs> and I think she's understanding in that moment that she is going to lose the memory of loving him. And then we get him flying back, you, you know, the bombs drop, the, the tower blows or whatever. 
And it ends with him vowing to start their relationship again. And the whole thing is just so sad. There's a moment where she says, I know what I'm going to lose. Please don't make this feeling go away. She starts pleading. She wants him to remember their love and to know how much that she longed for him and that she loved him this whole time. And she just is crying out, even just for a moment, don't make this feeling go away. Dude, that was tough for me because it reminded me of just in general of lost love or any ended relationship. And that desire that you can have to hold on to like every single memory so tightly and and you don't want to let them go right you don't want to let them get away um and and this is where the connection to your name comes in and why and both of those films like both of these films have this super powerful thing about them because we were you're gonna you have the, you you have it you have it and you're gonna lose it and it's like, would you rather have it and lose it or never have had it in the first place? The, the, old, the old question. And we go back to fate and the concept of destined lovers. And ultimately, it's hopeful. It's beautiful because they'll start anew because it's meant to be. And it ends with a wonderful line from him saying, we've lost the place of our promise in this world, the tower. But even so, we'll start over beginning right now. And it's like love will conquer and find a way like it's going to be able to, they've they've had this relation we didn't expect this um they've had this relationship that has essentially transcended their own memories mm-hmm. or hers and they're gonna start again i mean my goodness yeah it's fate of the, fast and the furious dom and letty is what we're talking about here mm-hmm. but they're they're soulmates and what happens it, it comes back and it's not always like that in real life. Sometimes you do just lose the person and all you have is whatever memories you have left and they trickle away and it sucks feeling like that. And so it's like, it's it's an awful feeling in this ending at first and then luckily it's happy <laughs> and not totally sad and you right. get to have the hope of this continuing anew and fresh and starting all over again. And then, and, and then it's almost even better because it's like you get to go through all of this again and not in the dream world, in the real world. You get to expand, experience it again, only right. tangibly and, and for real this time. And it can be held on to and clung to and kept and fought for and all that stuff. And, and so it's, it's beautiful. It totally elevates the film for me. I absolutely love the way that this ends. Well, I think that it's relatable to its audience too, whether it's you or I or maybe other people. It's like when you wake up from a dream and you're trying to remember it, and the more you try to remember it, the more it kind of fades away. I think that's kind of something that Shinkai is trying to tap into. I mean, on a more important level, on a more emotional level. And for, for these two, it, it is something that it's scary because you have history and now it's going away. I mean, it kind of taps into the idea of losing a loved one to something like Alzheimer's or some debilitating uh, memory loss illness that they're not the person you know anymore. And that touches people. It's very personal for, for these two, for Hiroki and Sayuri. I believe that the ending in that specific thing really is a new promise 
that they're making to each other. And I think it's not just a promise uh, in our early days, but now it's, it's, and it's not the place promised. It's now a new promise. I think it's the promise itself that, that matters to them. It's, you know, in some ways it's like choosing to be married. It's like, look, this is the, this is the worst part of the for better or worse, but it's going to get better. And like you said, there's hope behind that. There's hope in the relationship that it's, now tangible instead of in this dream world and really that moment ties nicely into my connecting point which is where all this really starts and you hinted at it it's one of those moments that you mentioned where Hiroki is he's discovered that Sayuri has been asleep for three years discovers that he gets this mysterious note that tells him where what hospital she's in he goes and She's been taken away. In fact, I think a couple of scenes earlier, there's this out-of-body experience that she has. You see a ghost of her next to her sleeping body, and the doctor takes her away and moves her to another facility, and the room is empty. A couple of scenes later, he goes in, and it's at that moment where he, like you mentioned earlier, he connects with her. I guess it's some kind of, we could call it a paranormal moment, but I think it's just a Shinkai beautiful moment where they are connected now on two different planes, the dream world and the actual world. And you're right. It's accented and it climaxes that beautiful where they touch hands. And now there's that bright, vibrant scene in the background, that open world, that, that uncharted landscape, that bright landscape that's filled with hope that says, he says, I'm now determined to connect with you again. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that I can be, get close to you again, that I can be with you. And it culminates in that moment that you're talking about at the end, which I think is satisfying. It doesn't necessarily land completely perfectly for me, but it's satisfying. And with those two scenes kind of put together, I think it makes it more meaningful because we see where his motive comes from. We see where it started. We recognize that now he has this kind of faith to believe that she's alive somewhere. Her conscious exists somewhere. I can connect to it. I believe in that and I'll do whatever it takes to see that pay off. I think is a beautiful thing. And I think it's what makes that moment that you mentioned so powerful. Could not agree more. I'm glad that they tie together almost like a red like, string, like a red ribbon, you know, <laughs> like a string connecting points forever tied parallel <laughs> world, space and time destined to be divided, divided by star ratings. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully well, not too far. I, I wouldn't. I, I'm pretty sure we're not too far off. <laughs> well, that wraps up this first of four episodes celebrating Makoto Shinkai's work. We'll continue the uh, rest of January with more of these episodes. But in between this and the next one, during our regularly scheduled time, we will be talking about the Golden Globe Award winner, 1917. Finally out in theaters for us common folk, me being one of them. So I'm excited to see that, see it in a couple of days, and excited to talk about it. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. 
If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.